Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, get those and get them open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a black one and a seat back in front of you. If you grab it and get to page 1056, uh, you'll be right where we're at. We want you to do that because we want you to see this morning that what we talk about is not our opinion, but it comes from the Word of God, which is really the only thing that matters. And so I want to welcome you all. Thank you uh, for being here. I thank the praise team for uh, leading us in that time and, and just, just really appreciate the opportunity that we have to, uh, to dig in the Word of God. And we know uh, it's, it's nice to see the full room. I know that uh, it, it takes time to set aside to do this. And so we're grateful that you're here. Uh, we're grateful for the opportunities that we have to, to, to pursue the heart of Christ a little more this morning. If you're a guest, I want to especially welcome you. Uh, thank you for coming. I know how hard it is to try something new. And so uh, please, uh, please feel our gratitude. And if you haven't, um, please stop by our Connect desk on your way out. We've got a gift for you uh, for coming uh, because we know, uh, we know how big a step this is. And we, we pray that the Lord will just take this home. And so before we jump into the message today, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer and we'll get launched into this. Father, we are so grateful uh, for, uh, for Jesus, for what he has done uh, in his death and resurrection, for what he has done uh, in his life and his reign, his kingship, to make uh, this days like today possible. Um, God, that we can have a hope in the face of death, we can have a hope in the face of, uh, of life that gets harder all the time, that we can have a hope that overrides everything, and it's all because of him. And so as we uh, turn our attention to your word, God, your word that consistently points us to him, your word that speaks truth, uh, whether we want to receive it or not, um, we ask that you would be the one who moves uh, most mildly today, God, that you would be the one who speaks, that you would be the one who convicts and teaches and encourages, uh, confronts, whatever you need to do, God, that you would, you would do it today, uh, that we would respond humbly and obediently to it, and that you get the glory from it. And we pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So a little while back, I, I walked out uh, the front door of our house, heading to uh, my truck that was sitting in the driveway, and I noticed that there was a small pool of liquid or fluid under the truck right where the engine sits, which is not something that you ever want to see, right? And so I, I did the guy thing and I inspected it. And even as I was inspecting, I'm like, what? I don't know anything mechanically. How am I going to know what fluid this is? But I was still, I still got down there and looked at it and smelled it like that was going to tell me anything, right? And, and I was like, well, I don't know what it is. That was a waste of three minutes. And so then I went and started the truck and the truck started right up, like no problems, no warning lights came on. And I thought, well, must not be that big a deal. And so I drove into work and I spent the eight hours here and walked out to the church parking lot and I looked and there was another pile of fluid under my truck. And same thing, I was looking at it like it was gonna, I was going to know more than I knew eight hours before, right? And nothing. So I turned on the truck, no warning lights, no anything. And I was like, okay, we're just going to keep following this, right? And then the next morning there was another pile of fluid and I thought, okay, this, this clearly seems to be a pattern forming, but uh, I have a habit of every time I'm leaving, I don't have extra time. And so it's just like start the truck and go. And then one day I walked out and there was no puddle of liquid underneath. And dummy thought, hey, God fixed the truck, all right? Yeah, this is awesome, you know? Whatever it was, it never, like, no warning light came on, nothing like, this is, this is going to be great. And so uh, I drove for a few more days, and then finally, last Friday, uh, spring came. Uh, it finally got warm, and I, I hope you guys all enjoyed spring, unless you had something to do for those 12 hours uh, before summer came, right? But, but that was the first warm day of spring, and so I was driving uh, down south, and all of a sudden, warning lights came on. Every, like, the, like this, my truck started singing a song to me, you know, and then there was a, a warning that came up on the screen that I've never seen before, and it just said, engine temperature at unsafe level. I was like, okay, I have a pretty good idea of what was leaking and why it's not leaking anymore. 
Well, it was leaking his engine coolant. Why it's not leaking anymore is because there's none left to leak, right? And so I pulled over to the nearest gas station. I popped the hood open and you know, just doing all the smoking and steam, and I let it sit for a few minutes. Bought coolant, poured it in, waited a bit, turned it on, drove around, and it stayed at a perfect temperature the rest of the day. But guess what was in my driveway the next morning? A pile of fluid, right, under, underneath the truck. And at that point, I had a decision to make. I could, every 7 to 14 days, buy more coolant and just keep going. Right? And the only reason I was considering this was that the symptoms would be gone, the truck wouldn't be overheating, and coolant's a whole lot cheaper than auto repair. Auto repair has gotten crazy expensive, and we've just had too many of them lately. But ultimately, thankfully, adult Brett went out. I was like, I got to get this checked out. And so we took it to a shop and got it repaired. And what it was, was there was a complete failure of the water pump that was, that was a problem. And the mechanic told me, if you'd have just kept doing that, because I told him what I was thinking about. And he's like, if you'd have just kept doing it, you would have done significant damage down the road. I tell you that story because today what I want to do is serve as an engine warning light for you. Because today's passage is super depressing. Okay, we're going to start 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. It's the most depressing section of both 1 and 2 Timothy. It is a really hard read. We're going, to lead a, we're going to read a list this morning of 18 characteristics of humanity, and these will not be our strengths. Okay, the temptation will be to get overwhelmed, to get depressed, to want to retreat, or even form like a resistance to or rejection of our fellow man and woman. But what I want us to see is that the list that we're going to see here in 2 Timothy 3 is, is simply the puddle of liquid under the engine. It's just the engine overheating. It's, it's not pretty. We don't want to see it, but it's all symptoms. It is not the root cause. And the hope that we have for humanity, the hope that we have for ourselves, is that our hope is in Jesus Christ, who didn't come to clean up our symptoms. He came to make us entirely new in him. And so we're going to sit in the bad news for a little while this morning. But ultimately, we're not going to stay there because we don't have to. That's what Jesus makes possible for us. And so what I want this passage to do is serve as a warning light for us. That if there's something in our hearts, there's something in us, there's something in our affection that is off, that we can ask the Lord to correct it before we do more significant damage down the road. Now, so I'm going to invite Drew Allman up to read today's passage to you. He's going to read to you 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with him for the reading of God's word? Watch yourself. and have a seat. So that's a fun read, right? So listen, just make sure that we understand the context of this as we say each and every week. 2 Timothy is a letter that was written by Paul to Timothy. And one of the things that we need to note today is that when I say today we're starting chapter 3, it's because we have a chapter break in our Bible. When Timothy received this letter, it wasn't like that. 
Paul didn't say, now, chapter 3, Timothy, right? We added those in later. And so this would have been one continual thought, which is why in order to know what he's saying here at the start of chapter 3, we have to remind ourselves of what he said at the end of chapter 2, okay? And the whole last section of chapter 2 was on dealing with difficult people. And he was telling Timothy, don't, don't engage in useless arguments. Don't engage in ignorance debates, right? Don't, and then he also said, don't give up on people. Right? But with gentleness, you stick with the truth, right? Gentleness is just truth under control, right? And so perhaps if you do this, God will bring them to a place of repentance. And he, and he knows this wasn't the easiest advice to say, these people who disagree with you, these people who don't believe like you, you do just stay gentle, stay at it, persevere. But it's important context for us to have in order to understand what he's saying in the chapter, entire start of chapter three. And he starts chapter three with even more bad news, right? Verse one, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. How's that for a pick-me-up, right? Timothy, I gave you this really difficult advice to follow, but here's the good news. It's just going to keep getting worse, right? And the reason why is because sin and its effects are always progressive. Sin is always progressing. Now, sin impacts everything it touches, right? And I think the most fatal mistake that human beings keep making is that we keep underestimating how damaging our own sin is. It's why we don't see the need for Jesus as a Savior. It's why we keep making a mess of our lives, because we keep downplaying how big a deal our sin is. For instance, a husband or wife doesn't wake up one day and just decide, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to have an affair and throw away my marriage. I haven't thought about it for today. I'm just going to do it today. No, what happens is there's been a long pattern of a series of compromises, a series of, of making decisions that, that, that uh, de-elevated the marriage, a series of decisions that, that let your guard down of crossing tiny line after tiny line after tiny line, and then you look up and you're too far gone. Because that's what sin does. It starts small and just keeps progressing. Now, my first job was at a golf course. I worked at Clover Meadows Golf Course, and I really enjoyed the job. But the one long-lasting part of it is that it's left me in attention for the rest of my life. Because while working there, I, I fell in love with what I would describe as a clean yard. Okay, you know how I define a clean yard? It, it's, it's, a, it's a yard that has no weeds at all, that has really thick grass. It's all the same type of grass, right? It has consistent length and consistent color, and you can mow patterns into it. And, and that's what was at, at the golf course all the time, and, and that's what I've kind of fallen in love with. But it, that requires constant attention, constant time, constant resources, and constant effort because weeds are never satisfied. Okay, so at the, when I was at the golf course, if we ever saw a single weed, we had to treat that as the threat it was. We'd either dig it out and un unroot it or, or spray stuff on it to kill it immediately because if not, it would spread and start taking over the entire hole. And there's something peaceful about looking out on a hole and just seeing the same consistent green grass. But the joke was on me because I married a woman who doesn't want any fertilizer or weed treatment in her yard, right? And even if she did, I can't justify the expense on it. I couldn't afford it if I wanted to. And so now when I see a weed form in my yard, what I am, I'm like, come on in, the water's warm. Right? I'm just resigned to it. I'm like, by the end of the season, you're going to be everywhere, so just make yourself at home. Right? Because there's nothing I can do about it because weeds are greedy. They aren't ever satisfied. They won't stop until they've taken over every spare part of dirt. And this is how sin operates. It's greedy. It wants more and more and more. In Genesis 4, Cain brings an offering to the Lord that was insufficient. But we're told his brother, Abel, brings an offering to the Lord that was accepted by God. Instead of looking within, instead of trying to correct himself, Cain decides he's going to be really ticked off at Abel. And just before God comes to Cain and he warns him, he tries to stop him from doing something that he regrets, and he uses really interesting language. Look at Genesis 4, verse 7. 
He says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, then here's what he says. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. That's God telling us, sin's desire is for you. And not a little bit of you, it's for all of you. Because sin is never satisfied with just a small part of you. And so unless you repent of it and surrender it to the grace of Jesus Christ, it's going to keep taking more and more and more and more until it has all of you. And we see this on a personal level. We can also see this on a societal level. Paul's message to Timothy is that things are really bad, but know this, they're only going to get worse. Right? And so we see the progression of sin, we see it play all the time in society where it goes from private to public to praise to policy, just once more. Right? Where sin begins in like a, a private place where it's kept to the individual and closest friends, and at this point help could be found, but often isn't searched out for. And then you see where sin becomes more and more public, where in the media, both in traditional forms and social media, it starts getting more and more tension as they deliberately shine the light on it. You can see the strategy. They shine a light on a certain sin everywhere they can, not to bring healing, by the way, but to convince everyone that this is actually good and this is normal and there's way more people like this than you thought, whether it's true or not. And then it progresses from private to public to praised. And now that it's out there, the next step is to celebrate it, not to offer healing, not to offer help, not to help people work out of it, not to care for a person's soul, but instead to celebrate the sin as if the sin itself is the prize. And now, anyone who's not in support of it, who isn't celebrating it, can be labeled as hateful or out of touch. And then the last progression is policy. That once it's out in the open, celebrated by the masses, and there's enough groundswell to legislate it, you make it the law of the land. Why? Because sin is always progressing. It always wants more. It always wants more. And the reason Paul could say to Timothy that things are going to get worse is not because he, had some, he was some fortune teller. It's because he knew how sin works. It's never satisfied. It always wants more, which is why the follower of Jesus must take seriously the threat of their own sin. Too often we want to sit around and bemoan the sins of society and others when the focus needs to begin on our sin first and see them for the threat that they are. The second thing we can see here in 2 Timothy 3 is that, is that we were designed to love God first. Human beings are the prize of God's creation. And so not only are we given dominion over creation, but we alone bear what the Bible calls the imago Dei, the image of God. Humans alone bear the image of God and are given a soul. And so every human being you'll ever run across is an eternal being. We all have a soul that will last forever, and so woven into that design is a need to worship, to love, and to connect with God. And when he's the object of our affection, right, when God is the one that we surrender to, when God is the one that we worship, when he's the one that we aim to please, literally everything else falls in its proper place in order. But sin throws this whole design off. It makes, sure, it makes us desire things that are outside of what we were created to desire. But what sin can never do is affect the original design. It stays. Because one day a teacher of the law came to Jesus and asked him, Teacher, what is the most important commandment in all the law? And this is what Jesus told him in Matthew 22. He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest And most important command, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Listen, it's incredibly important that you read the Bible. 
It's incredibly important that you know the Bible. The Bible is God's revelation to us. It's how we get to know him because he's revealed himself to us in this. But Jesus did something remarkable right there. He took all the scriptures and he cut directly to the heart of them. He said, if you love God with all your heart and you love him with all your soul and all your mind and you love others as we do ourselves, then what you will do is you will end up living in perfect alignment with this book. Now, we have to define love as God does, not in another way. But it's wonderful to me the simplicity that Jesus breaks it down to. And I can remember fighting against this in my younger days. And my first Bible class in college was called Inductive Bible Study. It was taught by a guy named Dr. Stephen Lennox. And uh, at this age in my life, I'm still very much involved in legalism, right? And so he opened the very first day of class. How he opened Inductive Bible Study was this. He said, love God and then do whatever you want. Love God and do as you please. And legalistic Brett did not like that at all, right? I was like, all right, well, I guess we, he chose violence this morning, okay? Like, we're going to fight about this all semester long because you need to do this, and you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And I spent an entire semester trying to form an argument against it, and I couldn't. I failed. Because if you truly love God, then what you want to do is what will please him. Right? And that's the heart of this entire list that we see in chapter 3, that all these depressing things that Drew read for us they all flow from a lack of love for God and too much love for something else. Which is why stepping outside of God's design always leads to chaos. In the midst of this horrible list, right, and everything it entails, you can actually read it too fast and miss the problem. That most of this list are just symptoms, but the cause is love. For instance, in the end of verse 4, right, he's, he's gone through all these different, these terrible things, and it says this at the end of verse 4, rather than being lovers of God, right? So they love all these things rather than loving God. And also all these things, pride and disobedience and slander, and ungratefulness, no self-controlled, conceitedness, brutality, hating what is good, all that flows from a lack of love for God. But again, we're designed to love we're designed to worship God. And so all that love and all that affection, all that worship has to go somewhere. So where does it go? Verse 2. People will be lovers of self. That's where it goes. And then once they're lovers of self, also in verse 2, they'll be lovers of money. And once they're lovers of self, in verse two, 4, they'll be lovers of pleasure. See, the heart of the problem is a problem in the heart. Every time. So you remember the design? That we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. The great command to love our neighbor as herself, the reason for that is in the universe we have God and we have people and we have things. And if we stick to God's design, then this is how it works. We will, if we love God first, we will worship God, we will love others, and we will use things. That's, how, that's the design. But the moment, you see, the moment that we love ourselves more than we love God, the moment we love ourselves more than we love others, everything is thrown out of whack. Everything you see in 2 Timothy 3 is a result of this, that instead of worshiping God and loving others and using things, what we do is we worship self, we ignore God, we love things, and then we use other people. And it's once the design is out of whack, that's how it plays out. That when self is elevated, pleasure and money and success are elevated. When self is elevated, God is lowered in our collective conscience, right? When self is elevated and loved above all, the design is gone and chaos reigns. Now, I would argue that I don't, I don't know anybody who's in favor 
of what we find here in 2 Timothy 3. I don't know anybody whose goal is to be demeaning and unloving and irreconcilable and to be a slander and no self-control and brutal. Like, do you know anybody that's their life goal? Right? Nobody wants to be these things, but we don't want to admit that we're the cause of it in ourselves. That this list that we see, it's just what is pulling up in the driveway under our engine. This list is just our car engine overheating. The problem is in the engine itself. It's in our hearts. We don't love God like we should. And this is a huge problem, one that we need to guard ourselves against. And yes, I say we, because I think there's a really common mistake that church people make with this passage. Is that they read it as if it's somehow a commentary on today's society. Right? That it's, it's too easy to read this and shake our head and then say, man, it's just, I can't believe how bad the world is getting. But in doing so, we make two major mistakes. Number one, we disassociate ourselves from the passage as if we could never be the problem. And number two, we, we are not understanding at all the point Paul was making. Now, elsewhere in Romans 1, there's a similar passage, okay, where Paul begins to, to unpack for us the depravity of man and the progressive nature in sin and the ramifications that that will have on a society as a whole. You have my permission to read that passage as if it's a commentary on society. But here in 2 Timothy 3, in this letter, there's something added in in verse 5. Look what he says. He says, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. Now, there's, there's two things there, right? First, he says there's, there's that a, a, a symptom of this is that there'll be people who are holding to the form of godliness but denying his power, and then that you should avoid those people. And those two things added into this context that he was just told to deal graciously and patiently with those who disagree with him just two verses ahead, and that this is the letter written to a pastor serving in a church, then the context of this prediction becomes all of a sudden incredibly clear for us. And it's, it's this, that this has and will continue to happen in the church. This is not a warning about the world. This is a warning about the church. Paul isn't drawing lines here. It's not an us versus the world mentality. He's telling Timothy, this is coming into the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, with the command to avoid these people, it's, I'm arguing it's already there. Paul knew it was already in the church at Ephesus. Now, next week, we're going to hear a little bit more about avoid these people. Okay, but what I can tell you is this. The Bible is consistent throughout that we need to treat unbelievers and those who claim the name of Jesus Christ differently. Because to those outside of Christ, right, those who are not in his church, right, our message is one of grace and reconciliation, that all of us are sinners, and the only hope we have is to be saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus and our faith in him. And so it's not our job to run around and correct everyone's behavior, but instead to offer the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. But for those who claim the name of Jesus, who state openly that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, they open themselves up to church discipline, they open themselves up to accountability. They open themselves up to a higher standard. That is the point of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, that with grace comes higher standards. Because you cannot accept Jesus' name and then trample his character with conduct that you are unrepentant of and unashamed of. You don't get to do that. And we're going to hear some more about that next week. But what verse 5 makes clear is this, that Paul's concern is not that the world would be progressively shaped more and more by sin. His concern here is not that the world would lose their love for God. His concern is that the church of Jesus would. 
And you know, there, there's, a, there's a heartbreaking story that we get to see play out in the New Testament. Timothy, I'll remind you, is serving at the church of Ephesus. And you'll be happy to know, I don't know about you, but after going through First and Second Timothy, I feel an, an affinity to him. I'm rooting for him. You'll be happy to know he stays faithful to the end. He, all the things that Paul is worried about for him, they don't, they, the concerns aren't realized. He stays faithful to the end. In fact, according to Hebrews, he's jailed for a time. And so he follows Paul right into sharing and suffering for the gospel. Eventually, he's going to be killed in Ephesus for trying to stop worship of an idol. But this letter, 2 Timothy, was written around 64 AD. The last book in the Bible was the book of Revelation, which was written around either 96 or 97 AD, which, uh, by the way, would be uh, um, like either a year after or just immediately after Timothy's death. And early in Revelation, right, John records for us Jesus addressing seven different churches. And in one of those churches that was addressed was Ephesus. And do you know what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus? First, he commends them for all the good works they've done. He commends them for how they've stayed faithful to correct teaching. He commends them for how they've endured suffering. And I'm like, man, I can see Timothy's fingerprints and all that. But then he says this. He says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's Jesus saying, I'm just going to take the church out of Ephesus unless you repent. Now, abandon the love means, literally means you do, not, you do not love me like you did at first. And this is a big deal because just like sin, it is progressive. It starts small and just continues to build. First, it starts with even our efforts for God being untenable or unacceptable to him. Right? Because what, what's he write in verse 5? That they, they are holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. Which means it has a veneer that God's behind it, but there is no power of God behind it. And here's why. Anything that's done in the name of God, but separate from the love of God, will not have his power behind it. Even if he commanded that we do it. We see this in the Old and New Testament. In Isaiah 1, God is addressing his children, the people of Israel, and how even when they're observing the things that he told them to observe, he can't even tolerate it because they're simply just going through the motions. They don't mean it. It's not based out of a love or affection for him. As Jesus said later, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I want you to see the language God uses in Isaiah 1. He asked the people of Israel, what, what are all your sacrifices to me, asked the Lord? I've had enough, he's exasperated here. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Then in verse 15, he goes further. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I refuse to look at you. If you even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. I want you to think for a second. Who set up the system of sacrifices? Who set up the system of offerings and commanded that the people of Israel did it? Who set up prayer and commanded that those people did it? God did all that. He put it all into place, told them to do it, and yet even when they did it, he's like, I can't tolerate it. Because their hearts did not belong to him. Because anything that's done in the name of God that is separate from a love for God will not be accepted by him. And that's just the beginning. Then it progresses. And anything that's done in the name of God, but is separate from a love for God, will quickly, and I mean quickly, devolve into a love for self. 
that even the things that we're doing in God's name are really just about us. Even our service to God, even our membership in a local church, even the things that we do for him, what we expect from others, it all will flow from this very egocentric self-love. And without even realizing it, a gathering of believers that's supposed to be a worship service, supposed to be a time to worship God, becomes all about my preferences. It better be the time I want, with the teacher I want, and the music style I want, and do all this stuff, or I'm just, I'm out. A local body of believers that's to be on mission together becomes a place where I expect to be served and served and served and rarely give back because the church is there to feed me, not me to serve it. That God exists to bless me, not for me to honor him. And then it progresses more. That the longer we love ourselves more than we love God, the rest of this list in 2 Timothy comes. Money becomes more important than faith. Money becomes more important than cost or mission. Pleasure is more important than service. We don't want to call out sin anymore because God would want me to be happy, right? As if it's his goal to have the world revolve around me. And then ungrateful, unloving, demeaning, disobedient, slanders, lack of self-control, conceited, boastful, here it all comes. It's just progressing. And it's not because we're worse people than we once were. It's because our engine's off. Our heart is off. Somewhere along the way, we lost our love for God and replaced it with a love for self. And it started ever so subtly, almost to the point where we couldn't even notice it. And we told ourselves it wasn't a big deal. And then it progressed like it always does. Listen, we believe wholeheartedly that God has plans to use this church for his purposes because we believe he has that for every church that we are to develop others as his disciples, that we are to multiply the many things that he's given us, that we are to become a sending church and we are to become a planting church and we can move ahead with all that stuff. We can move ahead with a building project, we can move ahead with a name change and a church plant and everything else, that we, all the God-sized dreams we have, but if we don't love God above everything else, every single aspect of it will fail. It will fail miserably. Because this passage was intended to be a warning for Timothy to first be on guard for himself and then be on guard for his church. It was intended to be a warning for the church at Ephesus. It must be a warning for us. Because if we read 2 Timothy 3 this morning and left here shaking our heads about how bad the world has gotten, we will have completely missed the point. This is a call to alertness. This is a call to sobriety. This is a call to repentance. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told the church at Ephesus? Remember how far you've fallen and repent. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Repent just means turn around. Repent just means to turn back. It's a recognition that you're headed down the wrong path. The only remedy for the progression of sin, the only remedy for the progression of a lack of affection for God is repentance. It's the only way to stop it. And so some questions for us to ponder as we consider repentance this morning is do you truly love God more than you love anything else? And if you can't answer yes to that, then you need to ask the follow-up question. What have you replaced God with as the chief aim of your life? And that is your first entry point to repentance right there to turn from that. How is it that you see a love for self that is is creeping in just little by little, more and more progressively in your heart? Of all the things that you're pursuing, either as an individual or couple, as a family, 
How many of them are actually feeding God's intended design for you, that he would be the most important thing in your life? How many are actually helping in that? And is there anything that's distracting or taking away from him that you need to remove and have less of? And then lastly, because it needs to be said, have you ever just believed fully in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life? Because the first step to loving God first is being reconciled back to him. It's having your sins forgiven. It's being adopted as his child. And it's only done through faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. I think it's important for us to know the history of the church of Ephesus. There's a reason it's mentioned more times in the New Testament than any other church. The church at Ephesus was an incredibly important church in the early stages of the church because it was seen as, as a super strategic place for the church to be planted, for it to grow, and for it to sin because it was, it was a place that people came and a place that people sent off from all the time. It was a connection and sending point for travel. It was crucial. And I want you to know who their first four pastors were. The first four pastors at Ephesus were Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and the Apostle John. How's that for a roster, right? You guys should feel gypped out just that you've had to deal with me knowing a church had that, right? Add to that that Jesus himself addresses them in Revelation 2. There's never been a church that's been more heavily invested, never been a church that had more rock stars poured into it, and by the second century, the church at Ephesus was dead. There was no church there anymore. It was gone by the second century. Why? Because Jesus told them, Unless you repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place because God doesn't need us. We might think we're important. We might think we're crucial. We might think that we're strategic. He doesn't need us. And so if we don't love him and we don't honor him and we don't serve him as we should in his sovereignty, he will freely just use somebody who will. And he won't lose out in that trade. We will. And so he includes for us In his word, the story of the church of Ephesus. He includes for us in his word passages like 2 Timothy 3 that that act as warning lights to us so that we can catch trends before they become disasters. That we can ask the Lord to help us make him number one in our lives, that we can turn from a lack of affection for him, we can turn from a progressiveness of sin in repentance, and that he will meet us there and restore us before it gets as ugly as it looks here. And so we're going to give you that opportunity this morning. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful. Though they're not fun reads, and they're not even fun to preach about, I'm thankful for passages like this in your word that serve as warning lights, that serve as, to let us know that if we are heading down a path that we love anything more than we love you, we're heading down a path where sin is progressively taking more and more of our life, that the end of that road is not good. It's not where we want to head. And that you, by your grace, offer us this amazing portal of repentance. That because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, at any point, we can turn back. At any point, we can surrender those things to you and find your grace new and be forgiven once more. At any point, Lord, we can know your truth. We can know your grace and we can turn and head in the right direction. And so I pray that we would do that all around this room today. God, if there's anybody in here who's never taken that first step of repentance, never believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life, may today, may this moment be their moment of salvation where they say, yes, Lord, I turn, I repent, I believe. Forgive me.
And then, Lord, for the rest of us, would you, would you do us the favor today of pointing out the trends in our life, of pointing out the times that, that the, the progression is not leading us in the right direction, the ways that we have lessened our love for you, the ways that we have increased in our love for ourselves, for our sin, or some cherished thing other than you. And may we, as the church of Jesus this morning, have the wisdom and the surrender to repent of those and come back to you. Lead us to that for, your, for our sake and for your glory, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.